podcast is out. The age of independence is here, where the next generation of high-performing agencies transform the agency landscape. I'm a mom, a businesswoman, and mega startup coach. This podcast is all about you, the agency owner, stepping into the new wave of opportunity, knocking out the competition in the modern market. This is the Age of Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Agar. Welcome to the show. Hey, Andes, and welcome back to the show. This is Caitlin Agar, your host, and today's topic is all about sales, sales coaching, and what that means for your authentic self and how great sales skills can actually help you in your everyday conversations. So I'm kind of excited to dive into that. And we have a special guest today, um, Jeff Karchik, and he's the strategic sales director at Cresta. So I'm really excited to find out more about Cresta and their work with AI and what that means for us as salespeople and just talk all things sales coaching. So hi, Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I, I'm pumped for this conversation. You guys know I love sales so much. I just find it so fascinating. And um, it's really a, a, a layered topic. So excited to have you on the show. And um, tell us where you're joining us from. Where are you located? Yeah. So presently, I'm in Cape Cod. I'm in Chatham, Massachusetts, where I've been uh, hibernating through COVID since last March. Uh, I was in New York City before that, and I'll be moving to Boston uh, on July 30th. So that's uh, coming up and pretty excited about that. So I feel like you're located in one of the like most highly desirable places in the U.S. for this time of year. For those of you uh, that are listening to this later, we're recording end of July. So uh, half the country has probably migrated to where you're located right now and trying to take mm-hmm. to those beaches. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, pretty, pretty crowded down here. A lot of people that are that were whose travel plans were obviously put off due to COVID are pretty eager to get out and do things. So it's probably the busiest summer we've ever seen down here. Um, I think I've become a, a little bit of a curmudgeon being here full time. Uh, I'm only 33 years old, but I've become someone who, um, you know, I, I like the winter, you know, I'll put it that way. So, but, it, but it's been good. It's good to see people out and about and having a good time. So y'all, Boston and Maine were like, high, high, high on my wish list for this summer, but I love to plan trips last minute. I just absolutely love being spontaneous and getting an idea and being like, great, let's go travel. Let's do it now. That is not possible when you're trying to book a place in Boston or Maine in July and August. So that's the lesson I learned this summer. I got to plan ahead. Yeah. It's a tough time for, for travel with all the COVID stuff. Everybody's itching to get out there and I had to, I had to change a flight coming back from a conference in Vegas and it was, uh, it was, it was miserable. Like everything was sold out. So you got to plan ahead now. And you had a pretty big weekend. So tell us what's going on in your life right now. Yeah, I got engaged. Um, so my now fiance and I started learning how to golf together last fall and, uh, our house overlooks the eighth hole of a golf course. So when we you know, booked a tea time and when we got to the eighth hole, our families came out and I did the proposal, Aww. um, Unfortunately, the uh, box 
of, that was holding the ring in my pocket was noticeable. So she knew it was coming, but <laughs> okay. uh, she was still surprised about her family being there and, and all the other stuff that was planned thereafter. So I'd say it worked out pretty well. That's so awesome. So she could like tell and she was just waiting for the moment. And yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I didn't want to put it in my golf bag because I didn't want it to get lost or to like, you know, right. get damaged or something. So I feel like I had no choice. So congratulations. Thank you. Exciting. And you didn't lose the ring. That's the main thing. You kept track of it. That's That's, priority goal. Number one accomplished. (laughs) That's right. And the ring did not get insured until a couple of days later. So it was really important (laughs) to me that we took, you know, that we didn't lose it uh, right away. That was going to be my next question. When my husband proposed to me, we had driven to the beach and I think he hid the ring box in his sock, but he was wearing jeans. So I had no idea. (laughs) <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, maybe I should have done something like that. I uh hindsight's always 2020. So, you know, um everything else was flawlessly executed. So uh I'm proud of myself for the other parts of the uh the planning and things like that. But uh but yeah, it, it, it overall it was it was a solid experience. That's so awesome. Well, I'm really happy for you guys and it's gonna be fun planning everything. So um I hope everything unfolds just really well. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of work do you do at Cresta? Who, tell us who Cresta is and your role there. Um, you guys are doing some pretty cool on the AI side. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so I've been working in sales for a little over a decade. I spent seven and a half years at a company called Next Caller as head of sales. Um, the company was acquired back in March by Pindrop Security. Um, and I'm very happy and excited for everybody at both companies over there. Um, being from the contact center space and understanding how AI is really changing the world, uh, it was kind of a logical fit for me to come to Cresta, which is both within contact center and AI. Um, their philosophy is, is not using AI to replace people, but rather to um, use AI to upskill people. In other words, to learn the behaviors of the top performing agents and or sales agents, let's say, and then replicate those behaviors across the team by kind of amplifying their behaviors and giving real-time coaching. It's kind of like um, if you were playing chess and you had an earpiece and world champion Bobby Fischer was whispering in your ear, like what is statistically the next best move to make at every part of the game? That's kind of like what we're doing, but for conversations and sales conversations, um, uh, customer service conversations and and things of that ilk. Um, And philosophically, I align with, that mission because I've been a big, you know, and we'll talk about my book in a little bit, but, you know, I'm, I, I'm a big believer that authenticity and helping people to be a better version of themselves is a much, is a, is a much more positive view of the future than this idea of robots, you know, automating and destroying people's lives. So um, that's something that uh, was kind of dear to me when I, when I looked at this. So is sales a science or an art? So it depends who you ask, because um, if you were to ask me, I would say that it's an art um, because I believe that sales is really all about building trust and presenting an honest version of yourself. And I think there's an art to being you. Um, if you were to talk to a lot of other people, um, maybe if you, if you talk to my boss, he'd probably tell you it's a science. You know, the people that really are all about uh, being a medic and very process oriented. Um, and like realistically, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. I think that there are elements of both that are that are useful in various uh, scenarios. But for me personally, I've had more success in my sales career 
treating it like an art, not thinking about putting on a different hat. In other words, like not thinking about what is the right thing to say in the situation and just kind of saying what I think I think is the right thing to say um, based on what the customer wants. Um, so for me, it's an art, but I recognize that for many listening, uh, they might stop listening because they really, they, they disagree vehemently with that. And a lot of people are very science oriented. I think it's a debate that will go on, uh, really forever. It's a hot, it's a hot topic to debate for sure. And what's interesting about it all. And I think this is why it's an existential question is you can, you can coach theoretically, you can coach an artist to become a better artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's a, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition, I think. And I, I, what I found is that if you can equip someone with the science first and then like, Hey, you're going to get better results. If you take path a instead of path B, if you can start them off on that path with, um, proven, proven methods and a formula, formula, they can wrap their head around. It really starts getting beautiful when they bring their own personality to it and can make it their own. And so I think sometimes where we can fall short as sales coaches is if we expect them to start off just knowing how to just be you, just get out there, do your thing. And then we end up throwing them to the wolves without the stepping stones that they need to be able to figure out what works and what doesn't. Because so often what's really going to work might feel counterintuitive to us first. And we might have that gut instinct that says, oh, I just feel so out of my comfort zone. And sometimes that's the leap of faith you have to take to be able to start seeing results. I, yeah, I agree hundred percent. I, I think it's important to give people a framework uh, from within they can operate, right? So like there's a balance because if you wanted everyone to do the same thing at a certain point, you wouldn't even need people. You could just use machines and you could automate it or you could just hire anybody and they you, mm-hmm. you just turn them into a kind of this robotic process. But by the same token, you're right that, you know, there's certain things that statistically are going to go better than others and, 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 and certain high level practices that need to be followed. Some of the best, I think, like the, th- the times in my life where, where like a subordinate has given me praise for a certain type of leadership value, I'd say, is when I've had, I think actually predominantly inside sales reps, so the people doing the cold calling and things like that, who said something to me like, I really appreciate that you built like a, a framework or a methodology um, of values or that you want me to operate in while still giving me the freedom to express myself within that framework and for me to like be who I am and to kind of like make your process my own type of process. I think that's important because people need to feel empowered in what they're doing. If you're just kind of giving people a a list of things to say and do, they don't really feel like they're driving the value. They feel like you're driving the the value because you're the one who told them what to say and do. So I think it's important. Uh, I I agree with you hundred percent on that. Give them a framework that they can operate within because you know that you need to exist within that framework to succeed, but make it loose enough that the individual can still act in a way that is their authentic self. Absolutely. And in our sales training at Quantum, we, we build out a, a path to success called Selling with Purpose. It's very trusted advisor, advisor focused. It's really a, a consultative approach. And so some of those steps that might fall into like the science category might be something like, okay, at the beginning of the call, we're going to find need and here's five different ways you could five different questions you could ask to uncover the need. And then the art is then how you respond to that need. Did you just uncover a problem? And how did you tell the client that you were going to be of value to them and what they can expect by the end of our call today? And so that range gives them a little bit of room to be creative and to 
think through how they're going to develop that conversation, but they're operating outside uh, from within that framework where we've given them tips on where to start, because we know for sure that if they skip those steps, it'll be a really transactional conversation and the results will go down from there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, and I think the, um, the thing about that is, you know, the more that the, the more that your rep can detach themselves. I know this is going to sound really weird what I'm about to say, but <laughs> the more that the rep can detach themselves from the outcome, the better. Um, oh, so, yeah. So like, so like what I talk about in the, in the book is this idea that, you know, the way I define it in the book is actually different than the way I've defined it ever since writing it. But I define it in the book as like treating the customer, like you would treat your best friend or your family member, because when a best friend or family member comes to you, you're not thinking about your own agenda. You're just like, oh, I want to help this person. How can I help them? And you naturally start asking certain questions uh, that are predicated in creating a good outcome for your friend or your family member. And the real definition is like presenting an honest version of yourself. We tend to present honest versions of ourselves with people that we know and trust and for whom we want good outcomes. It's really everyone else that we don't. You know, if you think about, um, people that we don't know very well and we want to try to impress them. You know what I mean? So we might act differently than we would normally in a more comfortable setting. But where this comes back to being detached from the results, you know, when your friend or family member comes to you for something, you're detached from the outcome in the sense that it doesn't involve you. I mean, you want you want it to work out for them, but whether or not they take your advice ultimately isn't, you know, it, it's all you want is that things just work out for them. Um, and so that needs to be true. And, and like all things, you know, if, you know, it's a big world out there, you know, we we're we're like specks of dust in the universe. And a lot of times we take ourselves very seriously and we become really focused on the thing that's right in front of us. And if it doesn't work out, we get very upset. We lose sight of the bigger picture. The more that, the more that salespeople can start to almost trivialize the day to day and almost laugh about how insignificant everything is the better off they are because they'll find themselves not taking everything so seriously, not wanting to put on a certain persona. They won't be trying, they won't be reaching too much or, or reaching too hard for something. So, right. um, yeah. Oh my gosh. And we've all seen salespeople to get trapped in that moment where maybe they're newer to your agency, they're training, they're learning how to sell this product. They have a client and they come to you and they're like, <gasps> this is like a $10,000 sale. And they're almost like frozen in like paralysis mode of like, what if I mess it up? And so I think being able to detach yourself from that end result and just focus on helping the client and being confident in the advice that you have to offer and the skill set that you're using to bring value to their lives puts you in such a better place. I remember when I was on the phone selling insurance for the first time, I think one of the things that helped me the most was being able to just focus on the task at hand and not think about the premium amount at all. I was somehow able to just kind of lock my mind away from thinking about the price until it was done and it was time to log that that new client activity. And that really helps you because then if it's a smaller sale, like maybe you're helping someone with insurance for their car and their apartment and their insurance, that might not be a big sale for you. You might hardly make any commission off of that at all. Mm -hmm. The person still deserves the same level of education and guidance and advice as the next client that just happens to have a, you know, a bigger home or a higher premium associated with it. So I think it works both ways because it keeps you from 
becoming paralyzed in panic and fear. If it's this huge sale and you're afraid you're going to lose it and then you can't even show up for this person, or it can keep you from just pushing off to the side, someone that you think isn't um, going to make as big of an impact in your numbers. And you're able to really then make the same relational impact with every single client that comes on board. So Absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree with that hundred percent. And like, I've had, I, I, I've seen people make this mistake of treating others disproportionately and it comes back to haunt them. And I won't, I won't, out of respect for some of these things, I might, I might not tell some of those stories, but like I, for me personally, I have, even in situations when um, I don't have an immediate opportunity with somebody, I always treat them with like the dignity and respect. I mean, I've had people that I invite to dinner or something. They're like, oh, we already use your competitor. I don't want to waste a spot at your dinner. And I'm like, well, I, you think I invited you because I just want to sell you something? Like I'm inviting you because I want to hang out with you. And I think you'd add great value to this networking opportunity. And you know, over time, I found that like a lot of these people, whether or not they end up coming back, like a lot of them come back to me at some point because they want to do business or they just are wanting to be helpful to me in my career or follow me where I'm going because, you know, they viewed me as somebody who wasn't just, you know, trying to get something from them. And that's, you know, unfortunately, not the experience they get with most salespeople. And so it, you you start to stand out by not having an agenda in everything that you do with people. And uh, I know that sounds simplistic um, and like kind of a low standard, but I think it, I think it does resonate with people and they can sense when you are treating them in a, in a way that they would like to be treated. I think it's something to be aware of because when you're super goal focused and you have your eye on this target, there could be that inclination to be thinking about that goal or that number instead of the person. And so I think it's just something to be It's good to have it on our radar. And I think this would be a good question for like a survey. So for those of you who are listening, I'm super curious. Are you, have you ever found yourself when you are quoting someone for their insurance or you're working on a demonstration for your client, do you find yourself hyper-focused on the dollar amount and it's hard to transition out of that? Or are you the type that celebrates that, that premium or that sale afterwards. I'm, I'm wondering where we fall. That's probably 50, 50, but it's a funny, it'd be a funny question to, to ask the group. So that's really good advice, Jeff. And you mentioned the book that you wrote and, um, to our listeners, Jeff is the author of authentic selling and how to use the principles of sales in everyday life. And I know that your book has won some awards recently. So I wanted to, hear a little bit more about it because I'm seeing here that you recently won the 2021 independent press award in the sales and marketing category. So congratulations. Thank you. Runner up in the 2021 national indie excellence awards in the sales category. So tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a handful of, um, book awards every year and, uh, they're actually wait. There's one more that I'm waiting on that I'll find out about later this year. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, so far, so good. Um, you know, really for me, just writing the book itself was enough of a, um, I don't know, fulfillment for me. Like I, uh, I'm obviously very flattered and and humbled that you know that that there are some folks that that found a lot of meaning in it and that felt that it was worthy of uh, winning those those awards. Um, but yeah, the book was really so. I focused on English and creative writing in college. I uh, went to Princeton for my undergrad, 
kind of an atypical background for a sales career. Um, largely, you know, in, in some ways, just because a lot of the kids I went to college with just end up doing other things in their careers, but also because English and creative writing is super random and, you know, people didn't think I'd get a job after college with that, with that background. But um, I've always been interested in writing and it's been helpful for me in my sales career, especially in writing good cold email. And I built, I built an online course uh, for how to write effective cold email. Um, but long story short is I've always wanted to write uh, long-term. My dream is to become a screenwriter. And I thought that writing a book that was relevant to my career would be a good way to marry my interest in uh, writing with my career in sales um, in a lower risk way to take on a writing project. But the other thing, um, Caitlin, too, about you know the book and the motivation for the book was was a large in large part about like what was going on in the world. So COVID was happening when I started writing the book. And during COVID, our political dialogue uh, was not very good. It's actually still pretty bad. I mean, it's been bad for a while. When I say that, I just mean, you know, a lot of people just kind of calling each other names and not having a lot of empathy. And that's true in social media. It's true in the media. It's true almost everywhere where people are having conversations. Uh, ironically, when people actually have face-to-face -face conversations, they, they tend to go much better. Uh, but unfortunately, that's just not happening much these days. So I noticed this and I was very discouraged by it. And as someone who had been able to successfully have good conversations, I thought to myself, like, well, well what am I doing that's different? Um, and the answer was, I think, I, I think it's my sales acumen. I think it's the fact that I try to seek to understand and that I know that if I tell someone that they're stupid, um, that even if, even if I'm right, that they're not going to accept that, you know, I, I, I know you're laughing, but like, you know, for a lot, a lot of people don't get that. They think that you can call someone stupid and explain why they're stupid and that the other person will end up adopting your idea. That just doesn't, even if you're right, it just doesn't work that way. And so I thought, you know, what, what if everyday people could learn some of these skills to sell their ideas better? You know, salespeople get rejected all the time. Their job is to listen and ask good, good questions and try to be helpful. And in this vein of like trying to treat the customer like they're your best friend or family member, what if that person that you have conflict with, how could you try to treat them like your best friend? You know, wouldn't you treat them better than, than calling them a name? Um, wouldn't you ask them how they grew up and what, what led them to their perspective? Would you, would you not, you know, you wouldn't automatically assume they're evil for, for having a different perspective than you certainly. Right. So um Anyway, long-winded way of saying that the circumstances of what was going on in the world actually influenced the book. And the reason I call that out is because most sales books are very sales-focused and they're very technical. And so if you don't have a sales background, those books can be very intimidating because you don't understand what half of the jargon means. Um, this book is for salespeople, but it's also for everyone. And, and the reason for that is because I think everyone is salesperson in some way. You know, you're selling, you're always selling something, your ideas. And, you know, to me, it was always strange that the college admissions counselor is viewed as this, you know, great person who's trying to help people get in, involved into higher education, but the used car salesman is this bad, evil person. And you could argue, and I'm not, I'm not trying to knock higher ed necessarily, but there's a lot of people who think that higher education is not a great product and that a used car is a better product than a, than a $50,000 a year liberal arts education. And I'm not, my point isn't to make a 
commentary on that, but it's just to say that who decided that one person was better than the other, you know, that's, that to me, there's no, there shouldn't be a difference. We're all, we're all, we're all selling things in our lives. And the sooner we see that, the more important this becomes. It's so true. And so many of those principles just apply to everyday conversations. It's things that I wish that they taught way earlier down the road, because I feel like you either have to learn these things through a long time of life experience, or you land in a sales career like you did, where you're, you have the opportunity to master those skills and then connect the dots into how it applies to your personal life. And it's, um, uh, kind of funny. My kids are young. I have a, uh, a seven-year-old that's going into second grade. I have a five-year-old that's going into kindergarten and we've already started young on this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so funny, like to think through the coaching conversations in my Honda Odyssey van, when the kids are bickering and saying, okay, hold on. I want you to repeat after me and say, Callan, uh, I have, I want to chat with you about that. And can we start over and like trying to give the kids tools that they can use to help someone else see their point of view? Yeah. So I I'm trying to tackle that one young. Cause I know it takes years to get years to figure it out. Yeah, no, it's good. And then, but then the problem is that the, the student becomes the teacher. So, <laughs> you know, soon you'll be, you'll be, uh, getting outsmarted about, you know, ice cream before broccoli or whatever at the dinner table. So you just got to be careful with that. They definitely keep us on our toes. And our our five-year-old is way better at this stuff than we ever thought a five-year-old could be. So he definitely is giving us a run for our money. Yeah. Well, you know what I would say, actually, I think children are, are, you know, I never really thought about this before until you brought it up, but in in a lot of ways, children, because of their more innocent nature and they haven't been you know, influenced by their own selfish desires and things like that. In a lot of ways, actually have the capability to be better and more authentic salespeople because they'll just tell you how they feel and they'll be very honest with you. And, um, and, and, you know, it helps that kids are cute and and things like that, that helps with (laughs) selling, but, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, you're getting very honest approach. So that's something to appreciate. That's so, yeah, it is so cute watching them, you know, learn how to, learn how to navigate these things that they say the craziest stuff. So I think the, the biggest thing that my five-year-old is trying to sell us on right now is he wants us to buy him a chameleon. So okay, kind of a hard sale. We'll see. We'll see if he gets anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be curious to know the outcome of that. Yeah. So tell me more about what's in the book and, um, what that, um, what authentic sales can do if someone can embrace that in their everyday life. Hey, loyal listeners, when you hear me say CAS certified, that means that we use them in our agency. Are you a local insurance agent looking to take your business to the next level? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS, aka Nationwide Brokerage Solutions. But like in today's world, we use these initials like it's cool because it is. It's hip. At Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, they offer the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing market. That's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers, no matter how unique they may be. With a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and the guidance you need to see your agency succeed. Nationwide Brokerage Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. 
Don't you survive in the competitive insurance industry? Thrive with nationwide brokerage solutions today. Get started today and learn more at mbsbrokerage.com. That's where you learn more, mbsbrokerage.com. Cash certified. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you like a couple ideas or a couple chapters from the book and on a high level. Um, so there's one idea in the book that's called Inception. Um, I'm sure most people are familiar with the movie Inception with yes. uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, so, yeah, I mean, premise for those who don't know, you know, there's a guy who wants this other guy. So this guy Saito wants this other guy, Robert, to dissolve his business because Robert's business is competitive with Saito's business. Um, Saito doesn't go to him and tell him to dissolve his business. You're probably wondering why. Problem is the same thing we talked about before. When you tell somebody to do something, it's your idea, not their idea. So it's hard to sell someone on your idea. You want to you want to make it their idea. Um, and you know, so you know, Caitlin, if I have an idea and I want you to adopt it, the best way for me to do it is actually to kind of get you to want to do that thing, right? Like without me telling you, I want you to do it. I want you to like get to that conclusion on your own. Right. Um, so what, what Saito does instead is he hires this band of thieves to infiltrate Robert's brain through his dreams. <laughs> and he goes, they go several layers deep into his subconscious where they create this moment in his dream where Robert has a dying moment, like a moment with his dying father and his father tells him that he wants him to be his own man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, throughout the movie, Robert had felt that his father, you know, didn't think very highly of him and that he needed to run the business to prove him wrong. But when he has this dream and realizes what his do- what his dying father actually said was that he wanted him to be his own man, he wakes up with the resolve to dissolve his business. And so it's through inception, it's through this passive approach of getting Robert to come to the conclusion on his own that this guy Saito gets what he ultimately wants. Now, in real life, you can't, unfortunately, it'd be nice if you could, uh, but you can't hire a band of thieves to infiltrate people's dreams to get them to adopt the ideas you want. If you could, I'd be, I'd be a, a trillionaire by now. Cause I'd, I'd, I'd have gotten everyone to give me, you know, all, all sorts of things, but you have to, um, you have to do this through showing versus telling. And a lot of times the, the best way of showing is to ask good questions. Um, and so, you know, in therapy, for example, there's a couple forms of therapy, like talk therapy, where you literally just talk talk an issue out, forces people really to talk out loud about something that they hadn't really thought about before. And oftentimes they'll talk themselves into an answer. Or you think about like even cognitive behavioral therapy, which is um, forcing somebody to think about an alternative scenario to the idea that they've adopted. And you're not encouraging them to adopt an an alternative scenario. You're just asking them to think about what else is possible. So, So for example, if you're selling a solution and the buyer believes they should work with a competitor for a specific reason, you would ask them, you know, what, like, that's great that you feel that way. What, like, what alternatives are also true? Like, is it possible that we actually do this thing, you know, as well? Like, is that a possibility? Like, what, what other possibilities exist? So when you get them to talk out loud about the other possibilities that exist, now they're forced to consider the likelihood of those possibilities. And so now you have to sell them on the likelihood of something. And that's a much easier sale to make than, um, just trying to insist that you offer a better product that just, that just will never work. Um, so that's, that's the idea of inception. It's trying to plant ideas in people's mind through showing versus telling showing, which is usually brought about via, you know, different ways of asking questions. Um, there's another idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. That actually 
kind of happened to me yesterday when I was on the phone with a member of our recruiting team and they're doing interviews with associates and they like interviewed a candidate where they just aren't sure. And so they texted me and they're like, Hey, I don't know about this person. Like I need, I need to talk it out with you. And so I'd already seen the resume and the interview notes and the application. I already had all of the information. And I, I found myself in this moment where I could have just given a yes or a no. And just, they, they just wanted a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And what we did was we talked through it and I said, oh, okay, well, you know, tell me about this or why, why did you think that? What was their answer to this question? When you asked them to walk you through the last time, time they saved a client, what did they say? And they literally talked themselves right into the answer. And mm-hmm. they said, oh, they said, I think I just needed to talk to you about it. I think I'm really clear on it now. And they mm-hmm. came to the right conclusion. And so yeah. it was really interesting. And I'm glad that I didn't just like come right out of the gates and give them my thumbs up or thumbs down. Because I think they just needed to verbalize it and they just needed to like say it out loud and then think through, like once they said it out loud and they heard it themselves, they were like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it makes so much sense now. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I think it's a, it's a really good quality that, you know, it's great that you exhibit this quality. Uh, I think good leaders um, are not people who are trying, I think the uh, example of a bad leader is a person who would do the opposite of what you did, which is to exercise your authority and give an answer so that everyone knows you're the boss. And, you know, you, you just, you just give a yes or a no, a good, a good inquisitive leader asks questions and they ask why over and over again, and you force people. And a lot of times what happens too, is that people don't know the answer, which means that they, they're not, they're just not prepared to answer the question yet. And now what you've shown them is that they need to do some additional fact finding. Right. So I think good leaders ask these types of open-ended questions because it forces people to understand, Hey, do they have the right knowledge to make a decision? And then two, um, it shows them that you care. And, uh, and then obviously three, it helps them to come to the right conclusion. Absolutely. And I haven't always been strong in slowing down to ask questions so that someone else can figure out the solution on their own, because it feels in the moment faster and more efficient to just make a call and move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. So that's something I've had to really spend time on recently is do I want to just make the decision where I get the short term? The short term reward is that you get to accomplish it, check it off the list, move on and and work on the next item. Or do I want to take time to develop this person? so that they don't have mm-hmm. to me next time. And so that they're more confident next time and they can make a better decision next time on their own. And it takes longer to do that. And when you're, when we're busy, I think sometimes we can bypass that long-term reward mm-hmm. so that we can feel productive in the moment. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, to your point, the thing that happened in that interaction is the people that came to you with this question about the candidate. Now they see how you as the leader thought about that, like the questions that you asked. And now the next time they have that same type of question to answer for themselves, now they know how to like ask themselves the right questions to make the decision without necessarily needing to come to you. So the the subtle thing there that you did there and your like your leadership is that because you asked these open-ended questions, you actually sold them on the skill that they need to have. Like they learned a new skill from you without you telling them the skill. So like if you told them like these are the questions you need to ask. Like that, that, that often can just go in one ear and out the other, but like, because they observed it in action and it, like it becomes their idea because they just, they just saw what you did. And like, now they're going to adopt it. They're more proud of it because it's like, they feel empowered. Like they, they, that they learned it on their own 
without someone needing to teach it to them. And that's largely just because as human beings, we, ha- we all have some level of an ego. You know, some people don't have much of an ego and those are the best people to work with, obviously. But a lot of people, we all do. It's just a, it's in, it's in our biology. We're protective of ourselves. Um, you know, look no further than every other, every war that's ever happened in human history, right? So we're very protective of our own ideas. So the more that we can get people to have ideas, feel that they're their own ideas, uh, like kind of what you did, I think uh, works wonders. And loving these cliff notes, Jeff. And it's so funny how you were able to take the movie Inception and then demonstrate for us that sales is really about how how can someone look at something through a different lens and then possibly come to a different conclusion? And mm-hmm. that really applies to so much in our life. So what else, um, if you don't mind sharing, I'd love to hear another highlight from your book. Sure. Um, so one of the chapters that I particularly um, like because it's really counterintuitive for people is this mm-hmm. chapter called The Customer is Not Always Right. Um, and Interesting. Yeah. So you learn in sales and in, especially in service professions. Um, like if you're, if you've ever waited tables, um, I waited tables in high school and college for bits of time. I did too. You, you're told that the customer is always right. And um, I think it's a terrible philosophy for brands to implement because it puts their staff in serious risk um, in terms of, you know, how they're going to be treated. Um you know, I, I forget that this happened a little while ago, but I think there was like, I forget if it was like Hilton or Holiday and some front desk employee was getting yelled at by somebody and, and personally insulted. And the mm-hmm. staff member had some mental health issues and it ended up being like catastrophic for them. Oh, no. um, you know, but the point here is that let's take a step back and just think about what happens in your personal relationship. So let's say that like you and your spouse are having some sort of argument. Um I would hope, and that's not like, I don't mean you specifically. I just mean like a royal you. Let's say like <laughs> people listening have an issue with their spouse. I would not say anything um, because all that would happen is that one person would be very angry and uh, trust would be eroded in the relationship and not everybody would get what they want. Whereas if somebody does something inappropriate and it offends you, maybe you speak up for yourself and you explain how it made you feel, you know, without pointing fingers, but just saying like, Hey, this made me feel upset. And here's why you leave room for the other person to clarify their intentions, potentially apologize to you, but also you're going to build trust because what you've shown is that you're going to stand up for yourself and that you're not a pushover and just a person who says yes. And with customers, that's really important because you know, there's this intuition to just say and say and do whatever the customer wants. But really, all you're doing in that situation is showing them, A, that they can walk all over you and B, that you might not be successful because they're going to have demands of you that are higher than what you can actually deliver. So you're just going to you're just kind of kicking the can down the road in terms of a blow up down the road. Whereas if you get up in front of it and say, look, you're making demands that we just quite frankly can't meet, you know, and and I think that, you know, I'm do I'm saying this because I want this to be a successful relationship. You actually earn more trust that way because you're perceived as being honest, like you're perceived as somebody who wants them to be successful. You're perceived as somebody who will do the hard thing in the interest of making it work for both sides. And you might not get a yes. You might actually end up getting a no. But in that scenario, I would argue that that's still positive because you at least were able to find out that this wasn't going to be a good relationship for you. 
And so you have to stand up for yourself, especially in moments where you're not being treated properly. There's this idea, and I've I've had this, every salesperson has had this happen to them, where they come across a customer who, for whatever reason, feels that a salesperson is not the same type of human being as someone else, and that they can treat them as such. And there's a difference between calling someone a name. You know, I would never call somebody a derogatory name or something like that. But there's a difference between that and telling that person that what they've done is inappropriate and that you are going to stand up for yourself um, and that, you know, you're trying to help them. Um, And so it's a counterintuitive idea because I think salespeople are taught to just try to get to yes and do whatever it takes. But actually, a lot of times you want to get to a no. Sometimes it's good to get to a no um, and you can save yourself a lot of headache. And actually, you can get to yes by saying no. Um, I actually literally had a call today where I told the customer at the very kind of halfway through the call, based on what he told me, that I didn't think that we were a fit for them. Um, That's because I actually honestly felt that way and I didn't want to waste his time. And then as the conversation continued, it actually came to be that it could be a good fit because we uncovered some more information. And I think that they were more excited about doing the demo because of their perception that I would only have them spend the time if I really felt it was a good fit for them. I mean, I was willing to say no earlier in the conversation. So that's something that I think more experienced salespeople learn over time naturally because they they start to get, you know, they start to realize that they're wasting their time in a lot of places and they don't want to be. So I think more experienced salespeople figure this out on their own. It's often younger salespeople who are just eager to get any deal that they can who are less willing to stand up for themselves. And it's an important attribute to have to be authentic because if you would treat your best friend or family member that way, why wouldn't you treat the customer that way? Interesting. I think that's so true to enabling our team members to be able to have really productive conversations and empowering them to figure out how to get there. So uh, I think that that old statement, like the customer is always right, could be watering it down a little bit. And when I think Mm -hmm. about some industries, um, the more complex your solution is, the more your client is depending on you for your advice And so what I can see happen in insurance and professional services is a a new team member, a salesperson finds himself in a situation where they're dealing with this complex product that they're licensed in, they're trained in to represent, but the client tells them, oh, you know, I'm not concerned about this. I just want this coverage. I just want state minimums on my car. Or, you know what, I'm just going to purchase the home insurance. I'll worry about the car insurance later. And our sales teams could use that as a crutch or an excuse to just okay, great, we'll move on to the next thing when that might not be what's in the best interest of the client. So I think the more complex our products are, the more willing we have to be to have the hard conversations and to take time to have that consultative approach because clients really do expect, I think in today's world, education and advice for us to be able to show that we're bringing value. And sometimes that means saying, well, let's take a, let's take a minute and talk about those state minimum limits because Um, you're taking care of yourself minimally (laughs) if you go with that option. And let me walk you through other routes so you can take Mm. them for your family. And that means we have to be willing to to get a little uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. And it's an important, you know, it's important that people start to, uh, to, to think about that. You know, I think it's, um, it's not taught a lot of the time and uh, 
you know, like I said, it, it, I've, in the moments where I've exercised the power of no, uh, I've been pleasantly surprised to get, you know, people that actually, you know, come back and, and, and are interested in wanting to have that conversation. So. So where does AI fall into all of this? Um, because you've uncovered a lot of how that human element can really build trust in the sales conversation. Um, how do we balance that out with the capabilities available to us through AI? Yeah. So, you know, the reason I think that the the book was timely or like one of the reasons I wrote it when I did was because AI and, uh, you know, AI is, is, is changing entire industries. You know, when I go to CVS, there's not as many people at the, the register. There's self-checkout, you know, there's uh, self-driving Ubers now. And, you know, there's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there's just like entire industries that are being disrupted. And it's, I think it's just naive for salespeople to believe that they're somehow exempt from this, you know, that, that like their industry is fine because they're people, people and, uh, you know, machines can't become people or whatever. And it's just completely erroneous. The more that, you know, the more that sales is formulaic, and actually, this is why I'm more of a believer of the art. You know, the more that we treat sales as a science and as like a program. Well, what do you, what do you, how, what do you literally do to a computer? You program it, right? Like you, you, you build programs on a computer. So um, it stands to reason that highly formulaic or process-driven sales organizations might not need people in 30 years. They can program machines to handle their program, and you know, in a medic environment, you know, the bot can figure out the criteria to cross off the checkboxes, and and medic, you know, same thing for other other sales formulas. I actually believe that this will happen. I, I don't think it'll happen immediately, but thirty or forty years from now, I could see a world where there's machines doing very complex sales, and um, so what this means for the average you know, run of the mill salesperson like myself is you need to start thinking about how to protect against that. And the one thing that we have going for us as human beings is that we have our own authenticity. We have emotions and feelings. Um, we're not programmed. Well, at least, you know, at least we we're not programmed in the way that machines are programmed. And so, um, you know, I think that the more and more that we start to rely on what we have that's unique the better chance we have of protecting our jobs from the uh, those evil machines. Um, I would also just say that there's a, a, a more psychological reason why it matters. One is that uh, we like doing business with people that we trust. And you start to trust people based on feeling that they're being honest. Um, and now, by the way, that means they can be an honestly bad person too. I don't mean that you need to be like a good person. Like, um, you know, I, I've given a bunch of like, oh, here's an example, like Dennis Rodman is a weird guy and he's befriended like the dictator in North Korea, but he was arguably like almost as famous as Michael Jordan in the 90s just because of how, you know, he, he embraced this really weird persona of who he was. You know, he wore a wedding dress down Fifth Avenue in New York City and that endeared him to a guy across the planet who wants to blow up our country just to give you an idea of like how much authenticity can really sell people. You don't have to be an authentically amazing person. Like when you think of Dennis Rodman, you don't necessarily think like, Oh, he's a great guy, but you definitely trust whatever he said. Like, you know, he's being honest because he's, he's not afraid to be himself. So I think that it's something where 
like psychologically, there's something there that people register. They, we really appreciate people that, that just are honest and whether we like them or not, as long as we trust them, that's what matters when we will make a purchasing decision. That's why the AI stuff is um, relevant now because the AI is the exact opposite of authenticity. It's programmed. And that, that transparency is so important to us as humans and our ability to be able to pick up on that when we're chatting with somebody new and having these deep conversations. So that's really interesting in that we have this ability to bring another level to the conversation that a computer won't be able to copy for, um, for a really long time. But I, I think that also opens up an opportunity for us now to use AI to power our conversations and make them stronger as mm-hmm. opposed to replacing our opportunity to strengthen those relationships. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's why I joined Cresta when I joined. I mean, the whole premise of what the company does is basically learning behaviors of top performers. So looking at the like, you know, what it, like what is it that makes, you know, the top performers good at their job and that it helps upskill people by like teaching them these skills about how to handle customer interactions. So in that vein, I, I think there's ways that we can like really leverage AI for good outcomes and helping people to embrace a more authentic version of themselves. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, the more and more that we start thinking about it through that lens, I think it will be more productive for society. Um, it'll, it'll, you know, I think when people view it just as a threat, um, it makes people very nervous and, um, you know, a lot of the sales pitches are not very ethical sounding. I mean, if you're if you're selling an AI product and the pitch is like, hey, we can get you to fire your whole team if you buy this product, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, that'll help somebody's bottom line. But at the same time, you're also pitching an idea of like upending lots of people's lives. I mean, it doesn't make you feel good at night. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a, there's definitely something to what you're saying there. And it's something that, you know, definitely resonated with me when I, when I came in here. Absolutely. I think there's so much AI can do to accelerate the level of our conversations. We get more information through AI. We can make better strategic moves when the computer is like, you know, guiding us to take different paths. And we can use that extra time that we save to spend more time building the connection. It doesn't have to mean that we got to know the client less or ask them less about their lives or built less trust or didn't have that relationship. As long as we aren't using the tool as a crutch to just be faster and skip that trust building stage. And one of the things we say at Quantum is our job doesn't start until they say no. Because if the client's just saying, hey, I want to have a quote on my home insurance and here's my information, that's something that theoretically a computer can do. My job starts when they give me some pushback and there's some objections that I have to overcome and some trust that I have to build and some value I have to bring to the table. And I think we really have to stretch ourselves to go past just those easy yeses. Yeah, absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's something that, that that's been top of mind for me for, for a while now. So I definitely, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I love it. So how can our listeners reach out to you, Jeff, if they want to um, purchase a copy of your book or find out more about Cresta, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah. Um, well, gosh, uh, my website's jeffkirchick.com. Pretty much everything on there, like all the blogs, interviews, book, et cetera, is every, everything's on there. Book is available on amazon.com. It's authentic selling, how to use the principles of sales in everyday life. Um, my contact information is all on the website as well. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear from folks. I love 
brainstorming with uh, making new connections, things like that. So uh, that's the way to find me. And I'd love to hear from some people. Wow. I feel like we really covered a lot today and you brought such a fresh perspective to this authentic sales conversation and what it can mean in our everyday lives. And I know that for me, some of my main takeaways were number one, sometimes it's good to get a no. And I think that's when we have to mull over for a couple of minutes. And number two, detach yourself from the outcome. Just focus on the person you have in front of you right now, as if it's the only person you're going to talk to today and you're going to have such a better result. So Thanks for breaking that down for us, Jeff. Congrats on the launch of your book, the awards that you've won and the work you're doing at Cresta. It's really exciting to see. And we look forward to chatting next time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really, I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Have a great day. You too. Hey, agents, listen to this. Listen to this. What are we terrible at? Think of it. Think of it. Really? We're, we're terrible at training, right? We're not very good at hiring. We're not very good, terrible at firing, actually. Uh, terrible at creating process and some workflows. Terrible at technology and implementing that technology and even knowing what type of technology we want. And the list goes on and on. Now, listen, I'm an agency owner. And I, you know how it is to, to fix a problem. The first thing you got to do is you got to admit you have a problem. Here's what you do. Go to virtualintel.com. Check out what we do because we do all those bad things that you can't do. Really? And you may do one or two of them well. Good for you if you can do them all. Just want you to know you're in the minority. But if you can't do any of them good or you don't even want to do them anymore because it just takes too much mental power, then good for you for realizing that and give us a call. I'm telling you, virtual intelligence, that's what we do. And where we specialize in high quality VEs, not virtual assistants. Look it up. Go to ChatGPT. Put in what's the difference between a virtual assistant and a virtual employee. Enough said. I don't have enough time to go on and on about all the differences on this 60 second commercial, but you've got time to search it and look at it. That's what we do. We deliver high quality VEs. We mix the technology with it. We train them on the technology, give them and the technology to you and you're off to the races. I'm not joking with you. You can call my agency at any time, ask for Lordland. And we do ask her, say, how fast are you able to do quotes? I've actually got a couple videos of it. That's right. We can do five to 10 carriers in one quote in three to seven minutes. So you give me an auto quote, I can do five to 10 carriers in three to seven minutes. How are we doing it? We're doing it through the technology of virtual intelligence. Give us a call, check us out. You can ask for me personally, I'll do the demo for you. Who are they? Cast certified.